come before you as a needy people. We come before you, the eternal God and King of the universe. And we say that you are holy. And then, Lord, you are kind enough to invite us to crawl up into your lap because you want us to come also to our Abba, our Father. And we thank you for your great love that even though we are sinful people, you sent Jesus to save us. And it is in his name that we are able to come before you this morning. We pray for our church. We pray for our community. We pray for our nation. And we pray for ourselves, Lord, that we would exude your spirit in our daily lives so that others might see that we are Christians. We have needs to bring before you today. We pray for Vicki Bohr's daughter, Lindy, as she battles breast cancer a second time. We pray for Van Thurston, a, a founder of this church and leader of it for many years, who passed away, whose only request was that his son, Van Jr., would accept Jesus Christ as his Savior. And so now, Lord, we join him in that prayer. We pray for Jesse Leazer as he remains in the hospital and for the problems that he's been having, Lord. And we pray for your healing touch. We pray for the teenage daughter uh, of Carrie Brown's friend and her medical needs. We thank you for the delivery of a daughter, baby Cal, to Victoria Miller, uh, who was born by C-section this week. We pray for uh, Wes Fisher and his school as he's looking for dorm counselors, one for the boys and one for the girls' dorm, that, Lord, that godly mentors would be found, would be willing to pour their lives into the boys and girls at the school. Lord, we pray for Alan Bennett, whose cancer has reoccurred. We pray for healing and also peace in the midst of this to Alan and his family. We also lift up Helen McIntosh, and we pray for her strength, Lord, and protection in the midst of COVID. We pray for Margaret Madsen, Lord, for the same thing, that you would be with her and watch over her and protect her. And finally, Lord, we pray for Vanessa Paluszczyk and her battle with ALS. And Evelyn Smith, right now, Lord, is she and Horace are preparing for her to transition from this world into your kingdom. Lord, there are other needs that we've had that we don't want to share, but you know them. We pray for those. And Lord, that we would trust you, not only with the things that we can see, but the things that are more important that we can't see. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus, because... You are our Savior and our Lord. Amen. 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 Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Um, it is 1030, and we're starting our second of two services today. So, um, I don't know. It's kind of fun to have three. I mean, 
So if anybody walks through the door in about 10 minutes, just know they didn't get the memo. They thought the service was starting at 11 since we've had an 11 o'clock service. So we just, we won't laugh at anybody. We'll just offer them a seat and let them come in at 11. But thank you guys for your patience and your um, flexibility with changing service times around. Our goal is to stay at, at, this, at this schedule uh, until we get back into our normal building, and of course, at that point, our service is usually at 10.30. And so we'll do 9.15 and 10.30 in the youth room until the point that we're able to move back into the sanctuary, and we'll, we'll do, be back to 10.30 in the sanctuary, and we'll just sort of see how it goes from there. We're still um, working towards getting that issue moving forward in the sanctuary. So please, please, please keep praying for us. We have some decisions to make. We have to work in patience with remediation companies and with insurance and make sure we're doing this right. And uh, that takes a little bit of time. Um, there are a few things in the church I want you to know about. On February 27th, we are hosting our um, twice a year congregational meeting. We do that in February and August of every year. And that will start at 530 in the gymnasium, and it will come with a meal, and the meal is a chili cook-off competition with a prize. So start thinking, start practicing, whatever. I made a pot of chili yesterday and wasn't even thinking about the fact that I've got to get ready to make something good on the 27th. I don't know if I'm eligible or not, but um, you are eligible. So come on the 27th, bring your best pot of cookie of, of chili that you cook. And y'all, if, if this was the third service, there's no telling what I would say. I mean, my words after three services, you should have a better version of me today, but we'll find out. So um, the 27th, bring a pot of chili. We will have prizes for the winners. We'll also have important updates uh, for you from the church and just various things going on in the life and ministry of the church. Um, there, are, there are two sign-up sheets that are out in the gymnasium lobby for us today. We wanted to kind of move the traffic out of this little lobby because it gets pretty congested in there if we have signups, if we have um, people talking and people coming in and out. So we have two sign-up sheets in the gym that you might have seen on your way in, if not look at on your way out. One is to sign up to bring a pot of chili to the chili cook-off. The other is for our Rebuilding Hope Workday, which is March the 12th. We originally promoted March 19th as a date, but that moved to March the 12th. That's a Saturday. We don't have the definite time. We know it's going to be at least the morning, but the time depends on, here's the way it works. We have to get people signed up so that we can know what projects we can tackle, and then the projects that we tackle help us see how long it's going to be, whether it's going to be just a morning, morning into afternoon, whether we're starting early morning, late morning, those sort of things. So we need you to go ahead and sign up early so that we can get the planning worked out with Jim Boyd, one of our longtime sponsored ministries with Rebuilding Hope, so that we can uh, do some work that day. Jim's ministry is a construction ministry, and we've, uh, we've heard from Jim before in this church, so if you're not familiar, it's going to be some level of demolition, repair, construction-oriented project, and probably a couple of different projects, but there will likely be some um, unskilled labor that's needed, yard cleanup, things like that, and so in the sign-up sheet in the lobby, what we want you to do is put your name and also what skills you're bringing to the table in a project like this. And so I'm just going to tell you, the very first name on the list is mine, and it has, my skill is encouragement, which is a little bit of an exaggeration. I'm not great at that. <laughs> but my plan for Saturday is to tell other people that they're doing a good job, and hopefully they are actually doing a good job. But whatever skills you bring to the table, if you're a carpenter, if you're a plumber, if you're a whatever, 
um, put that down on the sheet so that we can plan better and make sure we are making good use of everybody's time and um, we should have some work for unskilled laborers, for younger laborers. We want some uh, at least older kids and some youth to be able to help, but part of that depends on the projects too. And so um, there may be an opportunity to do something that involves younger kids, but we don't know that until we have the projects completely worked out. So sign up for that and more information is coming. Uh, there's also going to be a new members lunch at some point in March. We're working on two different dates and finalizing that. Um, Awana and youth are meeting tonight and all of this information is available to you every Friday in the e-update. And so I, just a reminder, this week's e-update was like amazingly long with lots of different details in there, lots of women's Bible studies in there. Um, we want you to pay attention to that, to read through that. And so if you're not getting that, please let Ramona know. And if you are getting that, please read that or I will, I, I, I'll just keep talking and not actually get to the sermon. No, you need to read that and we need to um, uh, be able to, you know, the opportunities are there for cool church fellowship events. We had a, a, a game day at a church family's house um, yesterday that was fun and good. We have life groups that are meeting every week. There's plenty of ways to get connected. We want all of you to get connected as much as you are able. And so make sure you're reading those to see um, how you can get connected. Now turn with me to Luke chapter 18. We're going to talk about joy and desperation. And we're going to start talking about joy and desperation with talking about football. Because, unbeknownst to several of you, I'm sure, it is Super Bowl week. And by that I mean the Super Bowl is not tonight, it is next Sunday. Um, and in the city that I was born in, Cincinnati, Ohio, that's kind of a big deal right now. Now, many of us around here just assume that the football season ended a month ago when Georgia beat Alabama, and that's fine if that's, the, if that's your opinion. But there is another game that matters to some people, so I'm going to talk about it for a little bit. Um, last Sunday, here's what happened to me. I went with the youth to go ice skating in Cincinnati. Um, wow, or it, not in Cincinnati, in Chattanooga. <laughs> See, it's only two services. I should be able to know what I'm talking about. Last Sunday, we went to Chattanooga with the youth. And the Cincinnati Bengals, my childhood team, were playing in a very important football game against the evil Kansas City Chiefs. And I was not able to watch the game because I was with the youth. Uh, and I actually told a few people, hey, I've got it recorded. I'd really like to watch this afterwards. I have not followed the Bengals closely most of my life. But when I was a kid, I was a really big Bengals fan. So it was kind of a cool moment to see them playing really well. So I thought, I'll just come back home at the end of the night and I'll watch it. And of course, as always happens, that never works. Somebody always ruins it. And so I, there was like 10 people that I talked to that were not going to tell me the end of this game. I blocked my dad and my brother on my phone so that they would not reveal the end of the game. And, and then I get one random text message from somebody that just ruins the whole thing. And it was good news. Bengals won. They're going to the Super Bowl. So then I, was, I had this weird experience of watching a game where you know the ending, right? And, and the thing I love about sports, that it, sports are actually therapeutic for a society, and I really believe this, in that sports allow us to emotionally engage, to experience the highs and the lows, the, the joy, the sorrow, the despair, but all along the way, at the end of the day, I hope this is your perspective, at the end of the day, we go to sleep at night and we recognize that that really didn't matter that much. That was really fun. It, it, it really mattered in the moment. 
But then when that, that game ends, you don't like it when your team loses and you, you love it when your team wins. But at the end of the day, it, it, it's not an eternal thing. It's, it's not even that, it's something of significant value in this life. It's something that is enjoyable, that's fun to argue about, fun to be competitive about, fun, fun to, um, to experience the highs and the lows. But it's not ultimately that important. But then last Sunday night, I'm watching the game knowing how it ends, okay? And I don't know exactly how it ends. I just know where it ends with the Bengals winning the game. And so the, 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 the roller coaster of emotions of riding from joy to despair was a little different last Sunday because I really wanted the Bengals to win. I knew they were going to win. But when it, with a minute and a half left in regulation, you have the Kansas City Chiefs on the four-yard line, four downs to, four downs to go four yards, to take the go-ahead and, and to win the game. So at one point, you, you look in one way, you look at that and say, well, the Bengals are up three, minute and a half left in the game. That's good for the Bengals. But then you look at it from the other vantage point and say, well, the Chiefs have four yards to go until they get six points, a minute and a half to go. Well, that's really good for the Chiefs. So I look at Jess while we're watching the recorded game, and I say, if I didn't know the end, I would assume Pat Mahomes is going to score a touchdown right here. I would assume the Chiefs are going to win this game. I knew the end. So then it was like, how is this actually going to happen? And, and then first down, no gain, incomplete pass. Uh, second down, like a, a three or four yard loss in a sack. And then you get the third down, and you're like, okay, now the pressure is on. And here's the thing about sports. Both the, the Kansas City Chiefs and the Cincinnati Bengals in that moment are at a point of desperation. Because with, with right about a minute to go, or maybe a little less than a minute at that point, you have a third down, trying to get it into the end zone if you're the Chiefs, or at least trying to be ready to kick a field goal and go to overtime. And you have the Bengals that are just trying to keep them out of the end zone and trying to keep from losing the game in regulation right there. And what happens? The great Sam Hubbard, who once played for another consequential school or or another team that is in Ohio that I care much more deeply about, Sam Hubbard comes up with a 17-yard loss on a sack and a fumble and they kick a field goal, and the Chiefs tie it, and they go to overtime, and Cincinnati wins in overtime. But it was an amazing ending when you think about it. How do you get two straight sacks, the total over 20 yards of loss right there? As, you're, as both teams, really, are up against the wall at that point of desperation, trying to push through and find the joy that comes in victory when you're on your last play of your season, you're at the last quarter of your season with your backs against the wall. Sports is fun in that because it gives us the roller coaster of emotions in a safe way that's not a life and death situation. But here's the thing about the Christian life. We experience real despair. And, and, and what Luke 18 is telling us today is that you should live in a state of desperation. That is actually the proper approach to the Christian life, is that you would be desperate for the Father, desperate for the provision that can come through Christ and Christ alone, but also that there is joy in that desperation. So that's our focus for today. Joy and desperation in the same moment found in Christ. And Jesus tells us two parables, and then there's an in-person interaction with his disciples that give us the third part of this story. And in this story, it's a story of joy and desperation. It's a story of the joy of desperation for the one provision, uh, the one ultimate provider in God himself. We see the desperately persistent. We see 
one person who is desperately humble, and then we see the desperately dependent children at the end of the passage. Three main characters, or one main character in each of the story, give us three main characters in the chapter. We have the widow that's desperately persistent. She's a, a, a demonstration for us of societal desperation. She's experiencing injustice. The system doesn't work for her. The judge is ignoring her. She has no options but to just keep begging for justice. The tax collector, he's a picture of moral desperation. He, can't, he has no good on his own. He has no moral merit on his own. And the good news for him is he recognizes it. And then the child is a picture of physical desperation and complete dependence. So that's our focus for today. That's where we're going. So uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 18, and we'll go through verses 1 through 8 first and talk about the persistent widow. And then we'll go through there and we'll see uh, what does it mean to follow Jesus in desperation? And how do we find joy in that desperation? Luke 18 verse 1. He, Jesus, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Or meaning, will he find faith like this on earth? Jesus tells a lesser, greater parable. It's a parable of comparison. And this is a parable that we can, we can over-apply. And some of the parables work like this. Jesus is making a simple point by way of comparison. And you can get to the wrong conclusion if you go too far with the comparison. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, Jesus is not telling you God is like an unrighteous judge. That's not the point of the parable. It's a comparison in which Jesus is saying how much more. The point of the parable is actually more that God is not like the unrighteous judge. So sometimes in parables like this, we spend all this time racking our brains to try to figure out why Jesus is comparing God to somebody that doesn't seem like a positive figure, why God, Jesus is, calling, is comparing us to somebody that doesn't seem like a positive figure, when in reality, parables are making sometimes, just often, just simple points. Some of the parables, you can go really deep into all of the weeds and see various applications that might not be there in the, original re, in the first reading. But in this one, it's a comparison, greater, lesser. It's a comparison and a contrast of a wicked judge, an unrighteous judge, and a loving father. And the point of it is how much more. And Jesus tells you the point that he's trying to drive home before he even tells the parable. He says, or Luke says of Jesus, the point of the parable is for the disciples to pray without losing heart. So guys, the point for us this morning is the same. We should pray without losing heart. We should pray recognizing our desperation, recognizing that we cannot uh, achieve all of our goods and all of our desires on our own and by our own efforts. 
we pray recognizing that our ultimate battle is the one that takes place through prayer. We pray recognizing that even when we don't see the results that we long for, we can still rest in God's sovereignty. See, the parable Jesus is telling us of a woman who was not getting what she was wanting, or even farther, what she deserved from the judge. It was not just a want that she was going to the judge with. It was, judge, act justly. It was, my rights are being violated. Please, somebody, stand up for me and do what is right. But the judge didn't care. He didn't care about the woman. He didn't care about anybody, any human, and what they thought. And nor did he care about God and God's ultimate justice that was coming for him. But he did do what she wanted, not because of any care for her or anybody else, but only because he was sick of her. Only because she was so persistent that he just wanted a peaceful rest at night and he wanted her to stop knocking on his door and begging all the time. This is a similar application to the story that Jesus tells earlier in Luke about the friend that's knocking on the door in the middle of the night asking for bread. And you don't give, the, in the story, Jesus says that friend doesn't give bread to his friend out of love for the friend, but actually out of obligation and annoyance that in the middle of the night there's this guy knocking on the door asking for bread. And so the, in neither story is the comparison, be like the person that's the reluctant giver, or is the comparison, God is the reluctant giver. What Jesus is saying here is that if that widow can look at an unjust judge and have any level of confidence that someday her persistence will result in that unjust judge giving her what she needs in justice, how much more should we persist in recognizing that the good God, the righteous judge, the ultimate righteous judge, will reward the righteous and judge the wicked. And the the ultimate comparison is, this isn't about something you want. This is about justice. This is about righteousness. And so what what Jesus is telling us is, when you are coming to God in prayer, and you are voicing a prayer that you know honors God, and you feel like you're not getting an answer, He says, don't give up. Don't give up. And and he's not saying don't give up because eventually you're going to beat God down like the woman beats the judge down. He's saying don't give up because your father in heaven is just and he will act in justice. Your father in heaven is good and he does give good gifts to his children. And so therefore, you can in faith Continue to trust in the sovereignty of this good God, even when it looks like he's not acting on your behalf. And here's the truth. we got to be honest about the way the Christian life works. Sometimes it feels like he's not responding. Sometimes it feels like he's silent. Sometimes it feels like he's taking a step back and he's not actively engaged in the hurt and the crisis that we're experiencing in life. And so what do you do in those times? Jesus says, you keep praying. And you don't, again, you don't keep praying because eventually you'll beat him down. You keep praying because you continue to have faith and confidence in his justice. That even when he seems to be acting slowly, even when he seems to not be acting according to your will, you trust in his sovereignty so much to know that he knows the right answer. To know that he has, has stitched together the plan for all eternity, for all of his people, for all of his creation, and that his plan is, goes far beyond what you are asking for. 
what you are, what you are begging for in prayer. And, and the faith in God's sovereignty it shapes the way we pray because we say, number one, God knows what I need better than I do, but it's not going to stop me from telling him what I feel like I need. I'm, I'm going to express the desires of my heart, but I'm going to express it in such a way as to walk in faith regardless of what the answer is. And number two, God always, always brings justice. And so if it feels like the wicked are prospering, and you think, God, why, why do you allow the wicked to prosper? Why do you allow evil to be successful? While, while here I am, I'm doing the right thing, and I'm, I'm living honestly. I'm trying to serve you, and I keep suffering in the midst of it. And here's this person over here that doesn't care anything about you, God, and, you, and it seems like he is succeeding, and I'm failing. God, wh- what is it? What gives? And the answer in the midst of that, when it, it feels discouraging to pray, is to remember that in the end, the righteous will be rewarded. And in the end, the wicked will be condemned. That's a promise from God that, that will stand. It, it, it's 100% certain it will happen every time. The wicked will be punished, and the righteous who are made righteous by Christ's blood will be rewarded. Therefore, keep praying. Therefore, don't lose heart. God's not ignoring you. He just has a bigger plan than what you see. And so when your deadline approaches and God hasn't answered prayer by your deadline, he's operating under a totally different schedule than you are. So keep praying and keep acting in faith, knowing that in his sovereignty, he knows what is right for you. And he works all things together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Uh, God is not in this passage moved by our annoying repetition. Okay, that's, not, that's not the goal here, because actually we believe that God is not moved by the, the, the doctrine, the historic Christian doctrine of aseity. Aseity is a fancy word to say God is not moved by something that is outside of himself, but rather God is moved by what is inside of himself. So God moves and acts out of his love, and, and it is so much better for God to be moved by his love and affection for us than to than to trust in God being moved by our own repetitious annoyance. We don't want God to be moved by our repetitious annoyance. We want God to be moved by his sovereign love and affection for his children. And so when we pray, we trust he is moved by that. He is moved by affection for his children. And so when it seems like he's not moving the way we want him to move, that's when we become persistent. We become desperately persistent to fight for faith in the midst of the darkness. But we also walk in desperate humility, as the tax collector shows us in verse 9 and following. Again, Jesus gives us a a hint at the point of the parable before he tells the parable. Verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So we know what this is going to be about. This is a parable about self-righteousness and the way the self-righteous mistreat others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but rather he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful 
to me, a sinner. The ultimate prayer of dependence, the ultimate prayer of humility. I tell you, Jesus says, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus gives us the point ahead of time. Don't trust in yourself for righteousness. That's what the Pharisee was doing. And we know there's Pharisees in the audience. And we know that at this stage, the Pharisees have already decided they don't like him, and they're trying to trick him, they're trying to trap him, they're trying to catch him saying something they don't like. And Jesus does not care. And he continues to condemn the Pharisees with his words. And in this, in this story, it is the guy that looks great on the outside, contrasted with the guy that looks like a sinner on the outside. And the guy that looks great on the outside is very respected within the Jewish community. And people listen to him. And people think, boy, that Pharisee, he's righteous. He gets it right. He follows the law. He obeys. It's such a good thing. And people look at the tax collector and recognize that the tax collector, he was a liar because he, he cheated on, and, and charged more than he should. He, he was also a traitor because he was a representative of the Roman occupation of Israel. And, and he was a Jew that was working for Rome to oppress and take advantage of other Jews. And, and so tax collectors were the lowest of the low and the, the biggest sinners that one could think of. They were hated by Israel. And so you have this extreme contrast of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, in his prayer, there's something we can learn about the Pharisee's prayer. There's something about the way he repeats I that you just know this prayer is off. 30-some words in his prayer and five eyes. I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Toby Keith prayer. I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. I want to talk about me. Oh, my, my, my. You know that one? That's the Pharisee's approach to prayer. It's the last time you'll ever hear me quote a country song. He's talking about himself. He's talking about what he has done. He's talking about his own righteousness. I get money. I give it to the temple. I fast. I'm not like everybody else. The fair, the, now, the tax collector, he talks about himself too. But he starts with God. And what he talks about himself is his focus on his own sin. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The posture of the two is extremely different. The Pharisee standing so that people can see him. The, the, the tax collector over in a corner, not amongst the other people, off by himself. The Pharisee lifting up his head so that he can look down on others around him. The tax collector won't even lift up his head in his prayer. And the tax collector just beating his chest, recognizing with contrition, with repentance, that I do not deserve the mercy of God. And Jesus is saying, that, that is the one that gets justified. You want to be like the tax collector? You're going to be humbled. Choose to be like the, or you, you want to be like the Pharisee, you're going to be humbled. Choose to be like the tax collector, you're going to be raised up. You have two choices. Either you raise yourself up or you humble yourself. Those two choices come with two different results. If you raise yourself up, God humbles you. You humble yourself, God raises you up. It's that simple. And so God, Jesus is calling to us 
Humble yourselves. Recognize your sin. Recognize your lack of righteousness by your own merit. Recognize that the only way to receive righteousness from God is through repentance of sin and recognizing that you are in a great need of mercy. Those who want to justify themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves in the last day will be justified. Now, another note on this, okay? The tax collector, his prayer with his eyes down, beating his chest in repentance. It's a beautiful picture. It's one that has stuck with me. I remember this passage from from being, I mean, a, a young adult, probably a teenager. This is always spoken to me about the importance of humility and the importance of of a real understanding of the depth of our sin. And that's what Jesus is getting at here with the tax collector. Recognize your sin is a far bigger problem than you might realize. Recognize that, that you really don't, no matter how much you think about it or reflect on it, you really don't have a concept of what eternal punishment for sin actually means. And what an eternal offense against an almighty, holy God actually means. Your sin is far worse than you imagine. And recognizing that your sin is far worse than than you imagine leaves you open to receive a grace from God that's far better than you can imagine. A, A God that is far more loving than you can imagine. Far wiser, far stronger, far greater than you can imagine. And that is the place of dependence and humility Jesus wants you to be in. But a note on this. When we come together and we pray, we do not always have to take that posture of the tax collector where we're always so broken and so desperate. Be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Because at a certain point, brothers and sisters, at a certain point, we've got to reach that point of dependence to where we humbly repent and acknowledge that. But we also have to reach a point of assurance in which we can actually say, yes, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then we can say, God, you have been merciful to me, a sinner. And see, the the picture of this is not just the Pharisee lifting his hands up like this, look at how great I am, and and the tax collector, look at how desperate I am, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The picture is Jesus raising the head of the tax collector. The the problem with the Pharisee is not that he, he dared to lift his head to heaven. The problem with the Pharisee is he dared to lift his head to heaven on his own merits. And the tax collector does not always need to leave his head down as if he has nothing to say to God. God has said, you are now my son, my daughter. You are now risen with Christ through through his conquering of the grave. And Ephesians says, you are actually seated with heavenly places with Christ. And so we, we live in that tension where we recognize we need that point of desperate repentance. But, but once we reach that point of desperate repentance, we should actually believe God for what he says and believe that we can now have assurance because we have received mercy. But then we go on to live in a desperate dependence as a child. Verse 15, they were even bringing infants that he might touch them. Some, some translations might say children, some might say infants. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, a couple things on this. 
The disciples are not anti-kids. Don't be too hard on the disciples here. Because it's important to think through what, what the scriptures mean by children in this passage. Like I said, some versions might in verse 15 say infants, some might say children. Mine, it says infants in 15 and children in 16. And I, I want you to think of these kids not as like eight, nine, ten-year-olds that are just going to sit in the corner quietly and, and figure out how to listen, and Jesus, Jesus is just saying, oh, this is too deep, this is too complicated for them. That's not the kind of kids we're talking about here. We're talking about wiggly ones. We're talking about loud ones. We're talking about the kind that can't be reasonably expected to sit still. We're talking about ones and two-year-olds that are going to occasionally make noise and create a distraction. So the disciples are not anti-kids. They just think they're in a really important conversation and they need to minimize distraction, okay? That's why they want the children to go away so that the children don't distract from the really important stuff Jesus is talking about. But Jesus is saying, it's okay to have a little bit of distraction because they're part of my kingdom too. And I can use the distraction as a really good illustration because there's something beautiful about a child and the child's dependence. And there's something beautiful about a child and the child's innocence. And, and Jesus, in saying, let the little children come to me, and whoever does not receive the kingdom with faith like a child shall not enter it, is saying a little bit of both. A, a child, especially one that age, in infancy, or one, two, even a toddler, a child is going to recognize they can't just make it on their own. They can't just take care of themselves and figure out their own stuff all the time. The child lives in regular reminders of his dependence upon somebody else to feed him, to clothe him, to take care of him. But the child, the child also recognizes the, the good of that provision. And the child, when a child is loved well, a child loves well in response. And a child loves in full faith in what mom and dad are giving. And a child, when, when they get hurt and fall, doesn't seek to self-soothe, but rather runs to mommy and daddy for soothing, for comfort, for, for healing, for relief in whatever way. But see, there's something that happens with adulthood. You learn a lot more, and some of those things you learn as you get to adulthood aren't really helpful for your faith. Because you deal with a lot of junk. You deal with a lot of betrayal. You deal with a lot of people that name the name of Christ that they don't, they don't follow through, that don't live out the life that honors Christ. You even live knowing people that do seek to truly follow the name of Christ, but just get it wrong sometimes and hurt people along the way. And then you deal with a lot of seeing the wicked prosper, like we talked about earlier. A lot of just seeing evil thrive and righteousness suffer. And adults, our biggest problem is that we're jaded that we maybe have a little bit less innocence, and we might call it wisdom, but sometimes it's more of a lack of hope. It's a, it's a reality of seeing the brokenness of the world that, that keeps us from really being hopeful about the future, hopeful about this life. And when Jesus says you need faith like a child, he means you need that kind of innocent faith that just believes the best, that just has confidence that what comes next can be better, that always believes tomorrow can be better than today, that believes that, that, that the Father is going to care and love and restore and provide no matter what. But we live 
through trauma, we live through trial, and we live through suffering, and we start to doubt. And even if we don't doubt God's existence, we do occasionally doubt God's care. And we say, yeah, sure, I, I believe God is in heaven, and he, he has sovereign control, but it doesn't seem like he's very concerned about my situation, my pain, my suffering right now. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You have to be able to trust his sovereignty and remember his care. And remember that just because the circumstances look like he's not doing what you want or what you expect doesn't mean he does not care, doesn't mean he's not actively working on your behalf. So what does this mean for us? We take this picture of desperation altogether. And we say we are persistent in prayer not because we want to annoy God into giving us what we want, but because we recognize that he is moved by his good. And we are learning faith and we are growing in faith along the way so that we can walk in fullness of the life that Jesus offers to us. I came across a, a list of questions on, on desperate prayer. This comes from a, a book, um, Reaching God's Ear by Sam Storms. And another pastor, uh, Kent Hughes, who I love, um, quoted it in his sermon. I thought it fit this passage well. Here's some questions about your prayer life for evaluation. Do you repeat a request because you think the quality of prayer is dependent on the quantity of your words? Do you repeat a request because you think that God is ignorant and needs to be informed? Or if not ignorant, at least he's unconcerned and needs to be aroused or reminded? Do you repeat your prayer because you believe that God is unwilling to answer and therefore you must prevail upon him? And therefore you transfer this hard-headed God into a compassionate and loving one? Do you repeat a prayer because you think that God will be swayed in his decision by you putting on a show of zeal and piety as if God can't see through the thin veil of hypocrisy? Let that not be true of our repetition in prayer. That's not the reason to repeat a prayer. The reason to repeat a prayer is stubborn faith. Stubborn faith that recognizes that God is who he says he is even when what we see with our own eyes doesn't immediately show us what we want to see. Tony Evans says it like this, if what you see is all you see, then you're not seeing all there is to be seen. That makes no sense at one level and all the sense in the world at another level. If you're only concerned with the physical reality that's right in front of you and your stuff and, and, and your own physical existence, then you aren't seeing the fullness of God's kingdom and what he sees. Because the... the the cosmic battle that we are all engaged in is one that God has already won the victory in. And the kingdom of God is pushing back the kingdom of Satan. And the, it is the gates of hell that cannot stop the advance of the kingdom of God. And so we have to recognize in those points where it feels like God is silent, where it feels like God is quiet, where it feels like God is uncaring, that we persevere in prayer because we don't know how the kingdom of God is expanding at all times. But we do know it is. Because God said it is. And God said he's going to continue to do that. And so we trust and we practice stubborn faith and persistence in our prayer and humility and dependence in our prayers because we really believe that God is good, that he loves us, that he has made a way for sinners to receive righteousness through repentance. Not through earning but through repentance. And so the offer stands for each one of us today. Some of us need to take the posture of the tax collector today. 
to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And maybe that's for the first time, or maybe that's for the 27th time, because though you are a child of God and you've given yourself to Christ, you still live under your own strength and under your own power day to day. It's good to come back and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I got it wrong again. And let God be the one to raise your head up so that you can follow through in real, stubborn faith and repetition of prayers for God's glory based on the assurance that can only come from him. David has something to say about this in Psalm 34, and I'll close it this way. Psalm 34. David is afraid for his life. There's this episode with Abimelech where his life is in danger, and he writes this psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. His His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify. That means glorify. Raise up. Increase. Magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And listen to this. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from my fears. Those who look to him, my translation says are radiant. The literal, those who look to him radiate joy. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Verse 5, David says, those who look to God radiate with joy. Verse 6, David says, this desperate man, or this poor man, or this oppressed man. It says, in desperation, I cried out and the Lord heard me. So does David believe that in desperation for God, we can have joy in God? Yes, he absolutely does. And that's our call for today. To persist, to continue, to walk the walk of faith in assurance that God is who he says he is and he has made you righteous, called you a son and daughter, and he is moving for your good, and for the good of his kingdom. So we persist in prayer, we persist in obedience for the sake of the coming kingdom. So stand up, we're going we're gonna, to um, sing another song, and we're going to bring honor and glory to the king who sits on the throne.